Real quick before we get started, in the last third of this episode, I use a swear word, the one commonly shortened to BS. And I start from about just before minute 18 to reference a theory devised by anthropologist David Graeber. It's the name of the theory, so I use it quite a bit. What works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. The biggest concerns I hear from independent workers are often planning, productivity, and getting through the never-ending to-do list. They were certainly some of my biggest concerns for years. Today, more of us are aware of the real risks of burnout and worry that the way we work will lead to a crash. We use technology designed to streamline our work and remove guessing games from decision-making. Notifications on our phones, in our inboxes, on our desktop screens, nag us with overdue tasks and urgent reminders. We're getting more done than ever. Yeah, you too. But many of us still feel like it's not enough or that we never quite have the time for the work we want to do. I've lived this scenario and observed others living through it for well over a decade. And here's what I've noticed. We're not unproductive, nor are we pathologically disorganized. So what gives? Why do productive, talented people like you and me end up anxious about how much they're getting done? Why are they unsatisfied with what they accomplish? How can they burn through to-do list after to-do list only to feel like they've spent little time on the things that matter most? And why, despite optimizing for efficiency, do they so often drop the ball or lose track of priorities? I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy without losing your humanity. A few years ago, I got curious about how I could, on one hand, be objectively productive, and on the other, always feel disconnected from my work and behind on important things. In other words, if I was legitimately getting a ton of good stuff done every day, how was it that I still didn't feel like I had the time or energy to focus on the important stuff? The business owners, independent workers, and creators I talk with regularly all suffer from a similar paradox. This is a near-universal problem for humans in the 21st century economy. While our expectations for productivity have skyrocketed, we've become ever more optimized machines designed to power through our to-do lists. And yet, we find ourselves unsatisfied with what we get done. We're frequently exhausted, mentally and emotionally drained, and under stress. Now, I explore an aspect of this in my book, how cultural, economic, and political systems influence the goals we set and how we execute on those goals. Today, though, I want to examine how work systems directly contribute to our stress and what we can do about it. Work has changed, but our story of work has not. 
The image of work today is still tangled up with the Fordist assembly line or Drucker-esque corporate drone. There's work that needs to be done, and so a worker is hired to do it. In this case, the work is a process, a set of specific tasks. Deviation is discouraged, so creativity and problem solving are unnecessary skills. However, this is not what the vast majority of work looks like today. From low-wage jobs such as home healthcare workers and retail clerks, to freelance gigs like design and consulting, to high-paying tech jobs, our labor is knowledge-based, care-based, or creative, and often all three. Yet the ways we think about productivity and time management are still deeply rooted in the old ways of work. Researcher Armand Hatchwell describes this old model of work as confined. Confined work relies on an established process, a specific outcome, and an expectation of effort required to meet the needs of the process and outcome. A confined work model is relatively easy to manage because the inputs and outputs are stable. If a machine breaks or someone calls out sick, a manager can rearrange the other inputs to arrive at the same output as before. There are clear and objective ways to measure a worker's performance. Now, confined work has significant drawbacks for both individuals and organizations, but it also provides two sources of stability missing in most contemporary work. First, predictable mental requirements, and second, predictable relational systems. When workers show up to the assembly line, they know exactly the task they will perform. They learned how to do that task through a standardized training process. Similarly, these workers know their place in the organization, who they report to, how communication with management takes place, and who to ask for time off. As I said, there are plenty of ways this can go very, very wrong. But we can say that uncertainty isn't generally a source of stress in confined work. The new work model, that of knowledge, care, and creative work, is unconfined, according to Hatchwell. There are countless variations in the process. We can't predefine outcomes because often the work being done is innovative in substance, so the outcome is actually unknown until it's created. And the effort required to produce indeterminate results will always be uncertain. The home healthcare worker doesn't know what they'll find when they open the door to their client's home. The designer doesn't know how a client will react to their concepts. The software engineer doesn't know what lines of code might break or whether they'll need to develop a new feature on the fly. Or perhaps more relevant, the creator doesn't know whether a post will go viral or not. A consultant has to navigate a different communication process at every company they consult for. A marketer deals with unexpected trends and emerging needs every day. Now, what's wild is that these very circumstances make this kind of work fun, energizing, and rewarding, while also creating the conditions for persistent stress and anxiety. Now, there are two ways that we can understand why we get stressed at work. And these two ways to understand why we get stressed also can help us unpack how to become less stressed at work. Now, these two models don't incorporate 
every reason that we might feel stress at work, but they do focus specifically on the work we do, how we do it, and why it leads to strain. First, let's look at the demand control model. Since our newer forms of work present this paradox of being fun and rewarding on one hand, and for the same reasons, often being stressful, we need more flexible ways to analyze the stress and frustration of this type of work. Luckily, organizational psychologists have been studying this for over 40 years because the new work model isn't actually very new. The first model proposed to explain both the joys and the stresses of knowledge work is the demand control model developed by psychologist Robert Karasek in 1979. It analyzes work across two dimensions, psychological demand and control over one's work or autonomy. A job with high psychological demand and high autonomy fosters the most motivation and learning. It's a fun and rewarding job. Whereas a job with low autonomy and high psychological demand puts the worker at high risk for distress. Jobs with low autonomy and low demand are, quite literally, mind-numbing. And jobs with high autonomy and low psychological demand are easy to maintain, but ultimately unfulfilling. Now, in case that all sounded like gibberish, I have a pop culture reference for you. If you've ever seen The Office, the US version, you already know this stress model's dynamic. Imagine goofball Jim as the one with a high autonomy, low demand job. His job comes pretty easily to him and he's free to joke around and play pranks on Dwight. I'd characterize Kevin as working a low-autonomy, low-demand job. He's an accountant, so the way he works is limited by the rules of his profession. But he isn't challenged by his job either. Toby is a worker with low autonomy and high demand. As the HR rep, he works with a tightly regulated scope in a hostile environment. In fact, he has a breakdown halfway through the series. So what about the coveted high autonomy, high demand job? Honestly, I don't know that any character The Office typifies the high autonomy, high demand type of job. So we're gonna have to go ahead and borrow a character from another NBC sitcom. Yeah, that's right. I'm talking about Leslie Nope from Parks and Rec. Leslie has a fair amount of leeway in her role as deputy director, navigating bureaucracy and local politics is just another opportunity for creative problem solving. She finds the job pleasantly challenging. She's motivated by the requirements of her role and draws a great deal of purpose and identity from the work. Now, if you're self-employed, it stands to reason that your work has a high degree of autonomy. You ostensibly make your own hours, choose the projects you'll embark on, and have the final say in who you work with. These are some of the top reasons people say they've chosen self-employment in the first place. You also get to choose how much you challenge yourself. And that should be a recipe for low-stress work that's highly rewarding and motivating. And that's certainly true for some self-employed folks. But I've also noticed how much demand and lack of autonomy we can place on ourselves as self-employed people. We inadvertently put ourselves in positions in which the demands are very high, 
say, trying to over-deliver on client support at the detriment of your own self-care, and the autonomy is very low. Say, trying to do exactly what our project management software tells us to do. As a result, self-employment can be associated with quite a bit of work stress. And that only adds to the stress that comes from the systemic and structural challenges of self-employment broadly. Now, there's a lot to glean from the demand control model, but it doesn't capture another key dynamic at play in how we relate to work. Resources, including compensation. For instance, consider a low-demand, high-autonomy job that pays well, the kind of job where you collect a nice paycheck and joyful benefits, but not much is required of you during the workday. That's the gym type of job. There's a good chance a worker in that type of job would have low stress, but they might feel more existential frustration. You know, kind of, what's the point? But the same type of job, low demand, high autonomy, will be more stressful if the compensation is inadequate. It doesn't matter that the job is easy and there's plenty of time to get it done. The worker will feel financial stress and existential frustration. Now let's look at the job demand resource model. The job demand resource model was developed in 2006 by psychologist Evangelia Demarutiel and Arnold Baker. This model examines how the availability of resources impacts job performance in relation to the demands of a job. The model demonstrates that as job demands and resources increase, so does motivation. And that motivation not only leads to higher job performance, but also leads to job crafting. Job crafting can be considered a form of autonomy or control at work. The worker actively shapes their job and its conditions to be better suited to high performance. On the other hand, work stress increases when a job demands high performance without the necessary support and resources. Then that stress can lead to self-sabotage, which effectively increases the demand of the job and further adds to stress. Under those conditions, of course, job performance is going to suffer. So between the demand control model and the job demand resource model, we've got a recipe for ideal working conditions, especially for knowledge, care, or creative work. So ideal working conditions would be challenging projects, flexibility in how those projects are accomplished, sufficient resources at work and personal resources to accomplish those projects, and regularly fine-tuning work to increase motivation and learning opportunities as a means of increasing performance. So then the question becomes, is this how you work? I wanna circle back now to where we started. How is it that a highly productive person can feel so unsatisfied by what they've accomplished at the end of the day? These two models for understanding work stress provide some answers to this question. If you've crafted work for yourself that is highly demanding, but don't allow yourself flexibility or sufficient resources to meet those demands, you're gonna be stressed out. Over time, you might burn out, including developing both physical and psychological symptoms of your distress. In other words, creating a satisfying work style that's flexible, challenging, and motivating 
is the product of recognizing the relationship between these different factors. We want to work with people who inspire us to do our best. We want to be paid appropriately for that work and have the time needed to do it well. We want the flexibility to approach work with creative problem solving and critical thinking. We want the space to think, learn, and become more skillful. What's more, these are the conditions necessary for most work in the 21st century economy. The promise of working conditions like these are a big reason people choose to work for themselves. And yet, there are often the conditions we deny ourselves in practice. Now, if you're listening to this close to its air date, you're probably thinking about how this year went and what you'd like to tackle in the next year. And I suggest including a review of the demands of your work, the autonomy you allow yourself, and the resources you have at your disposal. Here are some questions you might ask. Does your work present challenges that motivate you to learn and think creatively? Are those challenges met with an appropriate level of autonomy and sufficient resources? In what ways do you deny yourself flexibility in the way you work? How does flexibility or lack thereof impact how you meet the challenges of your work? What resources would allow you to challenge yourself in new ways? And what challenges would you like to take on in the new year? Now, of course, these are valuable questions to consider no matter the time of year. Finally, I want to wrap things up with something that may be a bit more controversial, or at the least, certainly more provocative than the questions I just posed. And that is a recommendation to take an honest accounting of the amount of bullshit in your day-to-day -day work. Here, I use bullshit as a technical term, or specifically bullshit jobs, a phrase coined by anthropologist David Graver, first in an essay and then in a book called Bullshit Jobs, A Theory. Graber defines a bullshit job this way, quote, jobs that are primarily or entirely made up of tasks that the person doing the job considers to be pointless, unnecessary, or even pernicious. He expands the definition later in the book to include that a person doing a bullshit job is likely to be required to pretend that their work is, in fact, not bullshit. Graeber differentiates bullshit jobs from shit jobs. Shit jobs provide real value to society, but exist under conditions that make them undesirable at best and intolerable at worst. Bullshit jobs, on the other hand, are often administrative, professional, or managerial, and so they're paid well, which only adds to the vacuousness of the work. Now, please note, I am in no way suggesting that your work is bullshit. Not at all. And according to Graeber's definition, no one else can tell you that you have a bullshit job. Only you get to decide that. But what I do want to suggest 
is that there is a high likelihood that some of the tasks you do on a regular basis are there for bullshit reasons. These are the things that decrease your autonomy in your day-to-day -day work and make it harder to meet the challenges of the work that you do. Maybe this bullshit work seems pointless to you, but you believe you're supposed to do it. Maybe it's work that's not aligned with your values, but seems like it's a necessary concession to make your business come together. Or maybe it's just work that, when examined objectively, just isn't producing any results. Graeber acknowledges that it seems ludicrous to suggest that a for-profit enterprise would actively employ people whose work serves no real purpose. But that is indeed what's happened. It might seem equally ludicrous to suggest that you might be doing work that serves no real purpose, doesn't contribute to results, or have a positive impact in others' lives. But I don't believe I've ever talked with a business owner or independent worker where I couldn't eliminate a task they despise from their to-do list simply because it was pointless. Let me say that again. Every coaching client I've ever had every Q&A I've ever done, every workshop I've ever taught has involved my recommendation to eliminate a specific task or many because it was simply bullshit. So while you're thinking about the demands you face, the autonomy you give yourself and the resources at your disposal, I think it's worth considering how much bullshit you put yourself through on a daily or weekly basis. Next week, I'll be back for my final new episode of What Works for 2022. I'm going to be sharing my favorite books and podcasts from the year and why they were important to me. And no, nothing I name will have spent any time at the top of the business charts on Apple Podcasts or at the top of the Wall Street Journal's bestseller list. That is just not how I roll. Now, speaking of books that haven't topped the charts at the Wall Street Journal, my book, What Works, A Comprehensive Framework to Change the Way We Approach Goal Setting, makes a great gift for your team members, your clients, your overachieving friend, or the college student or recent grad in your life. Get your copy at explorewhatworks.com book or wherever you buy books. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Emily Kilduff is our production assistant. This episode was written by me, Tara McMullen, and edited by Marty Seafelt and me. Sean McMullen is our executive producer. All of the music in today's episode is from Track Club by Marmoset, a certified B Corp. What Works is recorded on the ancestral homeland of the Susquehannock and Conestoga peoples in what is now called Central Pennsylvania. The Yellow House sits on the unceded land of the Kutunaha Nation. 